We're now going to return to our series in the Old Testament, and my title is Hints of the Trinity and Jesus in the Old Testament. And my goal today is that we will draw closer to our dear God as we see the unfolding of the mystery of who he is and how he relates to us. And three parts. I'm going to start by looking at the very first clues in the Bible that, that, that God is not just singular, but there's more to God than that. And then I'm going to look at uh, God with us, the angel, which is an expression of Jesus. And we're going to see how this, then this is the, the biggest of the sections I'm going to be do, doing today. And then we're going to end by looking at God in us, my spirit. So I'm not going to try and explain the Trinity today. Uh, just to say there is one God, um, but in that oneness, there are three persons who are not the same. They're not just three aspects of one God. Uh, they're not just three aspects. They're not just three separate people who formed an alliance to make a single God. Uh, people have used all kinds of symbols to help us to understand the Trinity. And I'm going to just show you some of them now. Um, so this is a, a very old one um, that's quite commonly used. And then this is a more complicated one. And this is a crazily complicated. I don't know how anybody can think that this one can actually simplify our idea of what the Trinity is. And actually, my favorite out of all of them is this one with just three interconnected rings because they're clearly they're separate um, in terms of like entities. But clearly they're all one. There's no way they can you can take one without the other. They are they are together. Now, not, of course, that this explains the Trinity. We can't reduce God down to a single symbol. But I think this is at least a bit more helpful than the other ones for picturing what God is like. So one of the questions then is, why does not God tell us everything at once at the beginning of Genesis explaining who he is? And I would say because ultimately the most important thing is our relationship with God. And that needs to develop. And as that relationship with humankind and God develops, so the understanding of what God is and who he is develops. Different facets of God are revealed as relationship deepens and grows. So it's in the context of this that he reveals that he is not just simply one, but there is a threeness as well. So I'm going to start looking at the very first clues and the very first clues, as you might guess, are the very first verse of Genesis. And we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew of that is Breshit bara Elohim et hash amaim et haretz. Sorry, haretz. So that's probably not terribly well pronounced, 
but um, it will do for now. Um, and I've highlighted the two IMs there. And one of them is the Elohim, and the other, which is, which is God, and the other is Hashamaim, which is heavens. And the reason I've highlighted it is because in, in Hebrew, if you want to make something plural, you put im on the end, just as if I wanted to make something plural in English, I would put an S on the end. So if I wanted to relate the fact that we have two Dans here, then I would say Dans in English, Dan or Dans. But in Hebrew, I'd say Danim, which would mean there's more than one Dan. And so there is a, the Im ending is plural. So, but it says in the beginning, God, Elohim. So here we have a little bit of ambiguity because it's not really how you would say singular. You'd say L singular. And um, it doesn't really make sense in that unless you understand that God is trying to say something more complex about himself. And so uh, then God continues uh, in Genesis. Verse uh, chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now it's very explicit that there's an, a plurality about God. Yet it's not quite as simple as that. And we're reminded of that by the next verse that says, God created humankind in his own image. So it drops back to singular. But then if we go forward to chapter 3 and verse 22, after humans had fallen, we read, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So we can see that, that God is not simply one. There is a hint of something more complex going on right from the beginning, right out of the gate in the Bible. And things get very interesting when we get to the primary statement in the Bible of monotheism, the primary statement of the unity of God. It's known as the Shema. I'll explain why in a minute. And it's, it's a foundation of Judaism. And uh, in Deuteronomy 6, we read in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the hear, that word is Shema, which is why it's it's uh, the, the the verse has been called the Shema, and the word the Lord is one is Echad, and this is very interesting because the word oh, oh sorry the next verse says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So this these two verses form the kind of the basis of Judaism and in fact uh, Christianity as well. So it's interesting that one Echad can mean a complex unity. And if you wanted to say that there's just one singular, you would use a different word in Hebrew. Because the word echad is a little bit more nuanced than that. And let me give you three examples, which I think will really help you understand how oneness can be not quite as simple. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. 
So what's that saying? Well, it's saying that there's a unity with a husband and wife. They come together to form one. But quite clearly, there's still two of them. So this is a, a place where had obviously means something more complicated than just simple unity. And here's another one. All the people answered Moses with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So these are thousands of people and they, it says they're speaking with one voice. So it means they're speaking in unity. But clearly there wasn't just one single voice being spoken. Each of them had their own vocal cords. What was one was they're, they're, they're saying the same thing. They're agreeing with one another. And so there's a oneness, but it's, Composite. One more example. Pharaoh has two dreams. And in Genesis 41, 25, Joseph tells him that it's one dream. Had. He uses that word. And what does he mean by that? Well, not that Pharaoh's wrong. There weren't two dreams. There were quite clearly two dreams. He described them both. He said, actually, they, they're a unity. They have the same meaning. They're, 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 they're really the same, about the same thing. And so um, we have then three examples of this word that is the word used in the very core description of God, which can very easily mean something that is more complicated than just a simple unity, just as husband and wife forming one flesh and fits very well into the idea of the Trinity. Uh, so that is that those are the very first clues. And now I'm going to look on the second point, God with us, the angel. And this is going to form the basis of what I'm going to be saying today. And it's going to be the most the, the largest section. And then we're going to end by looking at my spirit. So we have the expression, the angel of the Lord, or literally the angel of Yahweh, coming up in the Bible and begins later on in Genesis and it becomes more frequent. And this is used when God actually appears with us and he's with somebody and his visible appearance often, in fact, almost always in human form. And there, this, this person is described as the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. And the word literally angel means messenger. So literally it's the messenger of the Lord. Um, uh, quite often the people who this entity appears to don't realize that it's not a human being to start with until they do something miraculous. And very, very often it becomes apparent this this entity, this angel of the Lord, is in fact God. Um, and so we're going to look at several accounts of this. And one of the first ones is Hagar, who was um, Sarah's servant. Sarah gives her to Abraham to be white as a wife, and then all sorts of bad things happen and she has to flee. And we read that she's in the wilderness and the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So it doesn't seem that she recognizes that this is to start with, that this is God. It's just somebody who finds her. And he says, Hagar, 
Servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replies, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then carries on and says, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. So quite clearly at this point, this person is claiming to be, to have supernatural power and actually to be the one who's causing her to have many children. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. So this is interesting. So the angel of the Lord is speaking of the Lord as a separate entity. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. So now it says it was the Lord who spoke to her. So in other words, this angel of the Lord was actually Yahweh. You're a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen the one who looks after me. So this is very interesting because she considers this angel to be God, although the way the angel speaks um, in verse 14 um, he speaks of the Lord as separate. So it's like there's a fusion here that's going on between the angel of the Lord and the Lord. And in some ways they're, they're separate, but in some ways they seem to be one and the same. Uh, so this, this, um, these appearances of the angel of the Lord reach a climax at the, the burning bush and so Moses is going through the wilderness and we read the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And as you know, one of the things he was told was to take off your sandals from on your feet because the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It is holy ground. So here, quite clearly, the angel of the Lord is the presence of God. And this becomes clearer as we go on. And uh, but I want you to remember that bit about taking your sandals off because that's going to come up again in just a moment. Anyway, let's step forward to um, another 20 chapters in Exodus. They're in the wilderness and God once again is speaking to Moses. And here it's the Lord who speaks about the angel of the Lord. This is a really incredible verse. Uh, look, I am about to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared for you. So God is, is separating himself, distinguishing himself from this angel because the angel is actually going to be with them present with them. And so the point that I'm making in this is that the angel of the Lord is one who is with them. And as the relationship with God develops, you get this being who can manifest as a human who can actually be with them. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not forgive your transgression. Well, only God can forgive transgression. For my name is in him. My name is in him. In other words, 
he's carrying the name of God. So this is a remarkable passage. Uh, let's see the next verse. But if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, so hang on, his voice and do that I say, they're like, they're going to say the same things. I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. So the angel then is the presence of God that's somehow not exactly the same. Now, we know, of course, from reading the New Testament, that this was Jesus who was with them. Uh, What's interesting is that in the time of Jesus, the rabbis who read these passages had come to the conclusion that somehow God was a duality. And they called it the two powers. And this two powers theology was, was, was held amongst the rabbis at Jesus' time. We can read their writings. We can see that. Um, now, we know, of course, that Jesus was, was um, uh, the, the other one that's being referred to. But what happened was, once Christianity came, then this two powers idea was dropped by the rabbis because this was not good. It could be used to justify calling Jesus God, and that wouldn't be good as far as they were concerned. So the ones who rejected Jesus, of course, many accepted Jesus and became Christians, but the rabbis that rejected Jesus and continued um, Judaism, they stopped teaching this two powers uh, idea. But it's very interesting that you can see it there, and you can see where they would get it from, because it's so clear in many of these passages. So I've got another one I want to show you. And this is just a beautiful one. This is a lovely one. And this is uh, going to tie back to the holy ground that I pointed out earlier. So now we're going forward from Moses to Joshua, entering the promised land. And we have the angel of the Lord appears again. When Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. So he thinks it's a man. And he thinks he is this guy with a sword. Um, and Joshua went to him and said, are you with us or with our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And something about him must have just, there must have been an instant realization in Joshua about who this was, because we read, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth. And he bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord commanding his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this is beautiful because this is like showing the end of the story and showing how this is the one who'd been fighting for them. He was actually the commander of the army. And uh, beautiful story, commander of the army of the Lord. So he's making a distinction between himself and the Lord. There's another passage which I'm not going to read for, for shortness of time, but in Judges chapter 6, we have Gideon has an appearance of the angel of the Lord. and He thinks it's a person and then he says, I'm going to get some food for you prepares the food, brings it, puts it before this person, and the person just flame of fire comes out and receives it, and, it, and, and, and then the person disappears. And 
um, Gideon realizes that it's God and says, oh, this was God, I'm going to die. But Yahweh is still with him. And Yahweh says, no, you're not going to die. Um, even though, you know, the, the angel of the Lord is gone, he says, no, it's okay, you're not going to die, and this is what's going to happen to you. So we have these two beings with him. One of them is visible, and one of them is invisible. And the visible one goes, leaves, but the invisible one is still there and refers to the visible one. So um, that, this is a, that's a remarkable story in, in uh, Judges 6, and you can look it up yourself if you like. Um, there's, there are other hints of Jesus as well in the uh, in in the book of Proverbs, as as Anne um, beautifully explained to us when she preached on on Proverbs. That we have this image of the Lady Wisdom of as Jesus, and it's like a personification of Jesus uh, described in this Lady who's wisdom. Um, so I'm going to give you just one more passage which is building on this idea of Jesus being separate to a separate entity to the Father. And here, this is in Psalm 45. And this is describing, we know this is describing Jesus. Um, we don't know what the psalmist believed. but So verse 2, You are the most handsome of all men. Your words are full of grace. Therefore God has blessed you forever. So this person is separate from God. Strap your sword to your thigh, O mighty one. Appear in your majestic splendor. Appear in your majesty and be victorious. Ride forth for the sake of what is right on behalf of justice. Then your right hand will accomplish mighty acts. We carry on. Your arrows are sharp and penetrate the heart of the king's enemies. Nations fall at your feet. So your animals, your arrows are sharp. Your throne, O God, hang on a minute, now he's calling him God, is permanent. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. And then it ends by saying, you love justice and hate evil. For this reason, God, your God, has anointed you. So wait a minute, saying, God, your throne is important, is permanent, verse 6, and you love justice, you hate evil, so God has anointed you. And of course, this ties in with Jesus being the anointed one, because anointed literally means, is translated Christ. Christ in Greek is anointed one. So here we have these two divine entities, and one of them has anointed the other one. So I could go on and give you many more, but my main thing I want to do here is to to really uh, back up the idea that it's God with us who is the angel. And as the relationship with God develops in the scripture and there's a richness comes in, we see the revelation of Jesus being God with us. And then that develops to God in us, the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I want to say that as God begins to develop his relationship with humanity, he, he shows he can not only be with them, but he can be in them. And 
This is described very clearly as the Spirit of God. We don't have to guess because it's very clearly given. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his Spirit. Isaiah 48 and verse 16. And then there's the famous Psalm 51 of David repenting. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And it's interesting that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So we don't get as many verses about the Spirit, but they are there. And they are clearly there like this one here. So a new level of relationship with God. He's not only with us, but he is in us. Uh, So we've seen the very first clues in Genesis. We've seen that God is with us and we've seen God in us. How does this bless us? Well, how, how do we... How do we draw closer to God through this? Well, we need all of them. We need all members of the Trinity, just as children need their parents, because the parents uh, have have uh, blessed them in different ways, and we benefit from their their diversity. I've got very strong imagery, a memory as a child of seeing my parents hug one another and just seeing the love and just wanting to snuggle up in the middle of that hug between them. And one of the things that parents do is they model love to their children. They model relationship. And this is one of the wonderful things that we get from the Trinity is we see relationship modeled by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who takes such delight in each other. And so I want to close by taking us to the New Testament and a statement of the Trinity in the New Testament. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a wonderful blessing and one of the clearest verses describing the Trinity. But what's really interesting is that you can find some places in the Old Testament where you get a threefold blessing similar to this. Now, I want to be clear that this does not prove the Trinity in the Old Testament um, because it's not explicit in that way. But because of the revelation that we get in the New Testament, we can take this revelation back into the old and use it to illuminate some of these passages. And so here is a beautiful one. The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So I've suggested those three members of the Trinity because the role of the Father is to keep us, uh, to look after us. The previous verse I quoted from Corinthians said that we get grace through Jesus. And here we have grace through the second blessing. And the third one, of course, is peace, which is one of the gifts of the Spirit. So I'm not going to be 
adamant that this is exactly who it's meant in this Trinity, but I think quite possibly these verses here are reflecting the Trinity in this way. And so I'm now going to pray this verse over you as a blessing. And so I just want you to receive this blessing from God. The Lord bless you and keep you. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever situation you're in, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and give you that grace, the grace that comes with Jesus. And finally, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Just fill you with that peace that passes all understanding, the peace of the Spirit. May God do that for you right now and this coming week. And I'm going to close by reading the parallel verse in the New Testament. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us yourself in such richness. You're not a God from afar, but a God who's with us in whatever we're going through and a God who is in us. Lord, we praise you, we thank you. We are overwhelmed to think of what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you. Please help us to take this in and live in its reality in Jesus' name. Amen.